0: Visit the dsrnetwork.com/buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS one word to receive your discount. That's the dsrnetwork.com/buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support. And welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and Senior Editor at Yahoo News. Uh, this week, we are joined by Jenny Caffarella. I have known her for a decade, I think. And weirdly, strangely, uh, to my everlasting discredit, have not had her on the show yet. But she's a brilliant analyst at the Institute for the Study of War, National Security Fellow, I think is the official title. Uh, and if you don't follow her and her team's uh, work, they do daily assessments. Of the war in ukraine and obviously this is the reason i'm bringing jenny on jenny it's great to have you at long last
1: thanks very much for having me it's a pleasure
0: yeah you got you guys are doing um incredible stuff uh, particularly with uh map making and sort of pointillistically charting where we stand um in what 15 plus months of this russian full-scale invasion let's start very broadly and generally and maybe we can then zoom into some you know, more localized issues and and flashpoints. But where is this war at the moment? Um, To to the outward observer, it would look like, you know, the fall of Bakhmut, which seemed to be a very anticlimactic and muted affair for the Russians, much to their chagrin. Apart from that, things have remained rather static, and everybody seems to be building anticipation for this forthcoming Ukrainian counteroffensive. Have you noticed any Changes in along the contact line that might indicate that, well, A, this counteroffensive has already gotten underway, where they're engaged in shaping exercises. Uh, B, uh, what are the Ukrainian chances? Because I, I noticed that the Western analytic community is doing that cyclical thing of not quite doom casting, but trying to manage expectations that, well, actually this isn't going to be a route for the Russians, let's not get too eager and enthusiastic here. It's 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 it might result in some modest territorial gains or maybe not so modest territorial gains, but the war ain't gonna be over anytime soon. What what is your overall appraisal of, of everything?
1: Yeah, so we we are still in, I would say, the stage of what I might call the death throes of Russian offensive capability in Ukraine. Um the Russians haven't gained significant terrain in many, many months. As you mentioned, they did <clears throat> manage to take the town of Bakhmut, after a extraordinarily high cost in lives um, and high cost in equipment, ammunition, etc. But it's a very tactical game. The Russians haven't made significant offensive gains uh, this year at all, and actually really since last summer um, when they, they managed to make some gains in the Donbass. But what the Ukrainians have done is to play for time. They have been continuing to fight back against the limited tactical Russian offensives, they have in some cases drawn out some of these battles to buy time and space for what you mentioned that we are now seeing, which is the Ukrainians gearing up and preparing for a counteroffensive of their own. When that major counteroffensive is launched, I am of the view that it hasn't launched, although we can talk about the Ukrainian framing and why that's important. Um, But when a major offensive is launched by the Ukrainians to retake terrain, That will be the next major pivot point in this war. Uh, We can't know for sure how far the Ukrainians will be able to push, uh, how successful this offensive will be, but it'll be big and it will be much larger, uh, both in scale and potentially in effect than we've seen from past Ukrainian offensives, because they are bringing online capabilities that they actually haven't had since the start of this war. So the Western support to the Ukrainians at this stage is, is game changing. We haven't yet seen that manifest on the battlefield because the Ukrainians are being very deliberate about how they prepare, how they, as we say in military terms, set conditions both on the battlefield and in, you know, the perception space and the information space. But we will see that offensive. It will be armored and mechanized, right? We will see the tanks. We will see armored personnel carriers. We will see maneuver at the operational level. And we could still see disintegration of Russian defenses one of the things we need to watch for is the Russians have clearly put a lot of effort into digging trenches and layering in defensive lines. In some cases, in a lot of depth, you know, they're definitely trying to protect Crimea. But we don't know how well they can man those defenses, right? We don't know how high the the Russian morale is going to be, how well coordinated they're going to be able to remain when the major Ukrainian push comes. So it is possible that we will see what we call in military terms a route where the Russians essentially break rank and flee, as we saw in Kharkiv. Um, it's also possible we could end up seeing another deliberate withdrawal, which the Russians conducted down in Kursan um, in the fall. That all remains to be seen, um, but we're, we're at this kind of hold your breath anticipation point right now, um, during which it is important that we not go to either extremes. The extreme of thinking that because the situation hasn't changed, the Russians are very capably defending. Right. That's not true. Or the extreme of just thinking this war will be over in one fell swoop because wars rarely end in one fell swoop. And it would be very irresponsible of the West as the major backer to Ukraine here and as, you know, in the the case of the United States, you know, world leaders to just expect this will be easy. We need to expect it will be hard and we need to prepare for the long haul.
0: Well, no one in Ukraine was suggesting that this was going to be the, you know, the, the hammer blow that drives the Russians, you know, back across the border. This, this was sort of this weird media concoction in the West that. I guess because there's so much stock in them succeeding, right? It's been a while since they've recaptured a large swath of territory. There's a a great deal of political pressure being brought to bear. I mean, everyone is cognizant of the fact there's going to be a U.S. presidential election in a few years, two years. um, And that could be potentially catastrophic for the Ukrainians, depending on who wins the election and what becomes of American security assistance and also diplomatic support. Um, But they're you know they're far more um optimistic and bullish of their own prospects and you know you mentioned Crimea i wasn't given their their battle plans but i was given when i was there 3 weeks ago quite a a great deal of hints that you know look south young man um just the the rhetoric about donbass it's a black hole it's this this blighted and blasted wasteland where there is no infrastructure to seize There's very little to reconstitute. And frankly, they're worried that the population, uh, including those who have been under the yoke of Russian occupation for almost 10 years in the LDNR, that these guys are too far gone to be reintegrated, or at least in the short term. But Crimea, they think uh, there's no damage there, right? I mean, this was a peninsula taken almost without firing a shot. And they also believe the Russians will flee across the Kerch Bridge back to to the Russian Federation territory, and that the population is going to be much more amenable to liberation, whether or not that's quixotic or rooted in some kind of sociological analysis they've yet to share with us. I don't know. But Crimea, Crimea, Crimea is sort of where I'm focused on now based on on my reporting. And I want to ask you about this because it seems that the needle has shifted somewhat. Uh, it was, it started out with we have to help the Ukrainians push the Russians back to February 24, 2022 borders. And then all of a sudden, because they started to do well, and now, I mean, Jesus, they're getting everything, including F-16s, which despite what, what I'm reading in the New York Times and the Washington Post, nobody was in favor of <laughs> until they all were, which, you know, I don't know how this, this decision got made. But anyway, the, the issue of Crimea and, and Ukraine's ability to recapture what is seen as Putin's great prize and has been his great prize for many years now. There's more um, encouragement of this than there had been, although still plenty of skepticism. What do you see happening here? Do you think that they're going to conduct this campaign of corrosion and start bombing Sevastopol with storm shadow cruise missiles, happily provided by the UK? Or do you see actual infantry crossing the line and trying to, to, to make a push? I mean, they have to do quite a bit of preliminary work before they can even enter, say, the northern third of Crimea, right? Um, But is that where you guys are also kind of focused on more south than east?
1: So Crimea is a great topic, not only for its significance in the war, but also because it's one of those neuralgic points that causes people in the West to sometimes have a little bit of a moment of panic that we can't possibly threaten you know, Putin's gem in Crimea. And I raise that panic because I do want to spend another moment talking about perception in this war and how it relates to expectations, but also the strategy of the Ukrainians. Because the in the West, the overestimation sometimes of what the Ukrainians can achieve, I think is a product of the seesaw of the argument that we're having, which is, can Ukraine win? Right. And many of us who have been watching this situation very closely, as our team at ISW has, have been saying since pretty early in the war, actually, with Western support, Ukraine can win this war. That has been quite a fight in Washington, as you know, at various stages in this conflict. And it has been, you know, difficult to not difficult, but it has been a, a robust conversation in terms of setting expectations in the West, especially among audiences that are not military experts and don't watch warfare like this very closely. To help them understand that while Russia seems 10 feet tall, their military, the professional Russian military is being beaten to a pulp in Ukraine and arguably already has been beaten to a pulp. So the Russia that we imagined existed going into this war actually didn't exist. We way overestimated what the Russians were capable of. But it's taking the West, at least many people in the West, a long time to kind of come to terms with that reality. And understand what it means for Ukrainian chances in this war. So sometimes what that causes is then, you know, an over expectation to say, well, if you say Ukraine can win, then it must be true that they can win win quickly. And of course, that's not the case. Or we're going to see if that's the case, because war is complex and inherently not predictable. And we do need to give, you know, due credence to the level of effort that the Russians are going to put into defending their terrain. But when we talk about what does a Ukrainian victory look like, first we of course need to acknowledge that this is Ukraine's war. They get to decide what victory looks like for them. The West can decide what you know what our interests are and how much our interests align with Ukraine's. I would argue it's a near perfect alignment at this stage in the war and actually in principle. Um, but we don't set Ukrainian military strategy. We shouldn't set Ukrainian military strategy. The Ukrainians are focused not only on winning this war but also on winning the peace after the war and the reason i raised that in the context of crimea is because the ukrainians have decided that ending the war requires the reconquest of crimea at some stage in this war i think objectively that's fair and correct it is ukrainian territory u.s policy since 2014 has been to acknowledge that ukraine you know that crimea is ukraine But the Ukrainians are also focused on making sure they will have the military capacity to enforce a peace after the war is ended. I raise that in the context of Crimea because there's the question of taking Crimea and there's the question of securing Crimea, just like there's the question of taking and and securing the Donbass. And my frustration with how the US administration and, and overall the West has tended to approach this conflict has been to kind of parcel out small packages of military support and focus on the very much here and now kind of 10 yard line of of what does the next, you know, push need to look like rather than step back and look at the big picture to say if this war is going to end and stay ended. The Ukrainian military is going to have to become a westernized military. They're not going to be buying Russian equipment moving forward. So the way forward for Ukraine is NATO. There's no reason then to be holding off on giving the Ukrainians advanced systems that they're going to need long term to secure the peace and and prevent Putin or his successor from trying this again.
0: One of the the, the problems of joining NATO, I mean, I don't know if it's if it's uh, an ironclad clause of of the Atlantic Charter or whatever, but you you cannot have zones of contested territory or there cannot be... um, I think their, their phrasing is revanchist claims or something like that. So in other words, so long as Russia is occupying Ukrainian land and seeking to take more, that makes, that forecloses on the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO. So therefore, if you want Ukraine to be whole and secure and protected in perpetuity by a host of nations, you have to give them the tools to liberate all of their 1991 borders, right? At least at some point. Um, So, I mean, logically, this makes sense. But, I mean, I will say it it has been somewhat gratifying to see the temperature lowering um, gradually on the the issue of, well, if if the Ukrainians do X, Putin will launch tactical nukes, or he's going to do something really untoward and catastrophic. And so far, I mean, you know, in the last several weeks, there have been these nightly barrages of missile attacks uh, particularly on Kyiv, but all across Ukraine, right? And they're firing their their Wunderwaffe Kinzal hypersonic missile, which was going to be, you know, the missile to end all missiles. And James Rushton and I just wrote a piece saying this whole thing in theory was a busted flush, let alone the reality. And now the Ukrainians seem to be intercepting each and every one of these things using Patriot missile batteries that the United States is providing them. So in combat, all of the kit during the Cold War that we invented and developed and upgraded to essentially go to war with the Soviet Union slash Russian Federation, Russian Federation, the Ukrainians are using to great effect on the battlefield. So I talk about a, a, a vanguard of future NATO, the military experience, the intelligence that is being gathered in this conflict. I mean, this will be studied for decades in terms of how the Russians fight and more to the point how they don't fight, right? And how their are sort of, Potemkin, Self-assessment of their capability and their weapon systems does not measure up to the brutal reality of what they're they're facing, in, in and what was written off as a, not even a peer adversary. I mean, a, a, a joke, right? One that was going to collapse in three days. But I, I don't know. I mean, from your you you inhabit the sort of more blob-like aspects of Washington D.C. than I. Um, can you tell me? Do you see that there's a a kind of shifting narrative or a shifting understanding? in what's at stake here, and and even more to the point, what Ukraine is capable of doing, maybe not tomorrow, but down the line, months from now, or a year or two years from now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, look, as it pertains to NATO, this is a simple way of viewing it, and I'll acknowledge that, but I can't help but continue to come back to how do you tell the military, the country that defeats the Russian army in the field, that they can't be part of the NATO defensive alliance meant to enable Western democracies to, if necessary, defeat the Russian military in the field. So we would be lucky to have Ukraine join NATO. And I think long term, the Ukrainians are going to be teaching us how to fight, what future warfare looks like how to organize. There are so many lessons that are going to be learned from this war that we in the West are going to need to benefit from. I think the you mentioned the, you know, kind of paranoia of escalation with Putin. And I, I do use the word paranoia because it is grounded in fear. It's not grounded actually in an analytic approach to understanding the decision calculus an escalation ladder here, we're terrified of the possibility. We should be terrified of the possibility because it's terrifying. One of the things that distinguishes the perspective from Washington from the perspective in Kyiv, as you well know, is that Ukraine is intimate with this enemy. They are up front and they are fighting city block by city block, inch by inch for many, many months now, not just in Bakhmut, but across the front line. What the Ukrainians are learning is valuable to NATO, but it is also a set of lessons that we are going to have a hard time understanding because we are not the ones fighting this war. And I want to raise that because the Ukrainians are brave and the Ukrainians are taking risks, not just because they are Ukrainians, but because they must. We're not in that position, so you're seeing more risk aversion from Washington, because it's not our population at stake, it's not our survival as a country at stake. That doesn't mean that that Washington is ambivalent, right, or, or doesn't care, doesn't understand the risks. There's a great appreciation for what's at stake for Ukraine and what Ukraine is sacrificing, but it's inherently different. And that brings me back to scoping the counteroffensive. It is entirely possible that Ukraine is going to be bold and pick a target like Crimea for the opening salvo of this phase of the counteroffensive. I think it's also possible that they don't, right, and that they have a operational approach that, that focuses first, for example, on severing the ground line of communication, the supply line, um, down to Crimea and taking a longer term approach. I don't know, and candidly, I won't try to make a call about where the Ukrainians will focus because their operational security is you know, among the most important aspects of this war. I don't know what they're going to do, and, and I won't speculate specific courses of action, but I will observe that the Ukrainians are demonstrating an understanding of their adversary and understanding how to have effects against their adversary. And frankly, a better understanding of how they need to work backwards from the long-term end States here, right? Which is a secure and prosperous Ukraine that can defend its borders. And it's ideally part of NATO. And they're working backwards from there, it seems to set their strategy. And that's how you get to Crimea.
0: And let's, let's talk about, you know, paranoia is a, sort of two-way street here, right? Um, The Ukrainians are conducting operations, plausibly deniable, though they may be, uh, which are utterly humiliating, Russian sense of self-security. And I mean, look at this cross-border raid, which lasted for what, 48 hours in Belgorod, where, I mean, we were talking about the liberation of Russian settlements by, I want to get into the actors that were responsible for this because This is more than raised eyebrows, but I mean, let's just, let's be very candid about this. This certainly looks like a Ukrainian military intelligence operation whereby they armed a group of Russian, I I would call them extremists. Uh, These are unsavory characters, but anti-Putin Russian actors nonetheless, who then waged this daring and bold cross-border incursion into Belgorod taking what over two to three settlements. I mean, this was a deep penetration, like 40 to 50 kilometers across the border in, in the interior of Russia. And we're running roughshod over FSB border guard and whatever, you know, remained of any kind of conventional military um, contingent in these areas for two days. And for two days, (laughs) Russia was under attack by ground forces. Um, under the banner of, you know, what, Free Russian Legion and uh, the Russian Volunteer Corps. Now, these are not very ideologically um, cuddly actors, right? I mean, the latter group is led by an avowed neo-Nazi. There was photos of some of these guys captured by Getty with, I mean, swastikas on their lapels. If this was a Ukrainian operation, uh, it, it, it raises a host of questions in terms of, well, how and why are we providing or allowing our partner to provide, you know, um, mine resistant armored vehicles to these nut jobs who would probably, um, you know, be sanctioned or designated in the United States. But to one side, it's still, we the Ukrainians pantsed Russia and pants them in a way that it, you, you don't really recover so quickly from. Psychologically, the impact or the effect this is going to have on Russia's self-confidence and its own sense of what it can withstand with an army that as you've pointed out has now been trained by nato both in open and in secret i mean look at these guys in sweden that nobody had any idea were being you know these brigades that were being built up armed with state-of-the-art swedish military capabilities sweden's not even in nato yet um, they've been given cruise missiles in the form of storm shadow which i mentioned which can hit any target in all of occupied Ukraine it's actually quite terrifying to consider what Ukraine can bring to bear now against Russia. And I mean, as you said, the intangibles, the metaphysical aspects of war, particularly morale and a sense of why are we fighting, that does not exist on the Russian side, except in sort of limited areas, right? One could argue that Wagner, for instance, has this sort of cult-like zealotry uh, and, and allegiance to Yevgeny Prigozhin. And they will fight because that's that's all that they can do. And for them, it's all about the fortune and glory. But for MOD troops, I'm not seeing, you know, this sense that this is the great patriotic war redux, right? That they have a, a, a real understanding of why they've been sent into the field, what it is that they're defending. If they are fighting, quote unquote, NATO as state propaganda it makes it seem that should terrify them all the more because <laughs> they're now ranged against, you know, more than two dozen countries with better weaponry, better equipment and better cohesion than anything they've ever seen. So does this not work both ways? I mean, like, what what do you reckon the Russians are thinking right now? They're, they're, they're digging trenches, they're laying mines, they're building these dragon's teeth, um, you know, physical impediments to stop tanks in their tracks. But if you're a, a Mobik sitting in one of those trenches, and you're just kind of like watching the clock go by, knowing that eventually some shit is gonna hit the fan, this does not make you very, st- this has not put you in a very happy or, or equable state of, of mind, right? I mean, it, it's got to be pretty daunting, the task at hand for them. And yet we don't really appreciate that aspect of this in the West. We still see this sort of behemoth Russian military power. But I mean, look at the evidence of what, what has been this this chaotic mobilization and this, this sort of absolute sense of degradation on the other side. The Ukrainians don't have that on their side, at least not to the extent that that I've seen. Um, so are these not going to also kind of come into play here, like Russians being panicked and, and just basically legging it, (laughs) running away.
1: So these are the human aspects of war that are very difficult to understand. Well, really ever to be, to be honest, um, unless you're there and you're, you're fighting, um, but especially hard to understand from so far away. Right. And the question of the psychological effects, I think, is so critical, in part because we can't fully predict it until it happens, right? But also because it opens up avenues of inquiry that I am sure the Ukrainians are following into what's in the realm of the possible, right? It's possible that another Russian unit will break and flee, right, for the hills, for their lives, or surrender. That's possible pretty much any day. And it's entirely likely that we'll start to see that, I think when a major Ukrainian push happens. But there's also the question of, what can the Russians muster themselves given their current state, both the state of their capacity, but also the state of their morale? And the reason I raise that is to take us back to Crimea. I like to pose a question, and it's genuinely a question. I don't know the answer. But the Russians took Crimea, of course, back in 2014 in part selling a dream of rejoining Russia to the sympathetic population in Crimea. What has actually happened since the Russians have now invaded again to complete the conquest of Ukraine is a very dismal showing of what a future as part of Russia looks like. It's humiliating. And that has been true since about like four days into the war. (laughs) I mean, that's not only recently true because of this, you know, cross-border incursion. Um, The Russians have been being humiliated for well over a year now. We can learn a lot from that. First, we've learned that Putin is actually cautious about escalation. So the, the bar is high, in my view, to argue that the next humiliation is going to be the one that causes Putin to depart from his pattern of behavior, which is to be very careful and very deliberate about going up the escalation ladder. Look, there's also a reality I think we need to face, which is we need to be very sober about the risks of nuclear escalation. I would never discount that. It needs to be handled very seriously. It is being handled very seriously. Okay. But if we can step back from the brink of that, you know, panic attack, is Putin going to widen his war against NATO While he has no military that has a chance of fighting NATO, that's a really, really high bar. I'm not saying that there's no circumstance in which that could happen. Anything is possible in war.
0: And also, I mean, the the use of a tactical nuclear weapon, it's, it's a match you can only light once, right? I mean, if he were to deploy WMD, he is going to, if not lose, then severely deteriorate his relationship with China with India, with other countries that are sort of deeply ambivalent about this war to begin with, but we'll draw a line there, right? Also, and perhaps more crucially, it's not going to achieve his strategic objectives. It's not going to give him Ukraine, right? A tactical nuclear weapon will kill loads of people, but it's not necessarily going to have a battlefield, um, a major battlefield advantage, advantage to the Russian side. So I think, you know, it's 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 a lose-lose proposition, which has, in his whatever kind of mental or psychological state that he is in, he's still capable of rational thought. And again, it's been gratifying to see the reporting shift on this, but more to the point, U.S. intelligence, if if there was real panic in terms of what we were seeing from the Russian side, the movement of strategic weapons and all the rest of it, you and I would know about it because we'd be reading about it. It'd be the only thing that cable news is talking about. But so far, it's been, if anything, this panic attack that you alluded to seems to have dissipated. Uh, we have become more comfortable in saying we are going to send X, Y, and Z to the Ukraine. Again, cf 16s see long-range cruise missiles. I mean, everything that they wanted, with a few exceptions here and there, they have got. Uh, and that's, that's by dint of no longer overestimating the Russian threat, but also taking the Ukrainian capability at, at face value, right? Understanding that these guys have a chance of, of of winning the war in the long term.
1: Right. And I think the the fact that the temperature is coming down on this is a good sign. It also is a sign that whatever deterrence the United States and NATO have reaffirmed vis-a-vis the use of attack nuclear weapon is working and seems to be, you know, building confidence in the West. So That's good. And I know it has been taken seriously and not as a given. And so we are not likely, at least on our current trajectory, to see a Russian nuclear escalation against NATO. Right. So that's the first terrifying course of action. Second, it does not seem that we are likely to see the use of a Russian tactical nuclear weapon against Ukraine for the reasons you mentioned. Now, I should say for the record that the Ukrainians are the ones who decide whether they are willing to risk. Being nuked, it's not for us to decide whether they should endure a genocide, which is what the Russians are trying to do by eliminating the Ukrainian identity, rather than risk the potential that he uses a tactic that's not our decision. That's Ukraine's decision. They've made their decision. They're going to fight. But as you mentioned rightly, Putin would be destroying exactly the land and population that he aims to conquer. And at this stage in the war, he has been strategically defeated in Ukraine right? His aim was to eliminate Ukraine as an identity, as a nation. And Ukraine has never been more united as a nation and had a clearer identity and international recognition. And he's not resorting to those kinds of steps. He still thinks, it seems, someday that he's going to take Ukraine. His aims in this war have not changed. That's one of the more remarkable aspects of this conflict. It's just the sheer refusal by Putin to adapt, actually, to reconsider what he's gambling, actually, in Ukraine and what he's costing his own population in Ukraine. And it has consequences not only for how the Ukrainians design their military operation, but how we talk about ending the war, because Putin has no interest in negotiating a peace still. So while I agree with the objective principle of negotiations, with the objective principle of ending the violence and seeking a diplomatic solution, there is not room for one so long as Putin remains unwilling to negotiate, which he remains unwilling to negotiate. And he's pretty clear about that. So we have to change the conditions on the ground.
0: And also the Ukrainians have no desire to negotiate at the moment. I mean, you you mentioned it is their choice. This is is a, a matter of their own agency. Several months ago, there was a widespread perception on the street uh, in Kiev, at least, there will be some nuclear engagement. There, there's, there's, going to, We will get nuked. Um, and that, whatever, that was sort of the atmospherics at the time. Uh, again, that too has dissipated. But despite that pre-sentiment of coming apocalypse, they still wanted to fight. Nobody was saying, so therefore, because we will get nuked, it's time to cut a deal and cede our territory to the Russians. They, they, they don't think that way. Um, and I know it's hard in the West. We don't have the kind of cultural and moral imagination, perhaps, to understand what it's like to be under these, live under these circumstances with the freight of this kind of history of colonialism, but they do. And I think that's been sort of the real... Um, the sort of category shift that we've had trouble making ourselves, right? Understanding not only did we perhaps... Get Russia wrong for all these many decades, but we didn't really understand what countries that have been at states of conflict and war and under occupation by the Russians have felt uh, in terms of how they see this as an existential struggle, not something that's like a game of uh, stratego or stratego on on, on a, a playing board. You know what I mean? Um,
1: We're also not. And really, yeah, I mean, yeah.
0: yeah. Go ahead. We're
1: also not enduring the abuse. We're not seeing entire villages wiped off the map. We're not having our wives and sisters raped. We're not having our children ripped from their homes in the tens of thousands and sent to re-education camps or sent to Russia. It's not happening to us. We don't have that visceral reaction. I tend to think, and you know, this is a hypothetical and, and therefore worth nothing, but I tend to think if we face the kind of violence that the Ukrainians are enduring every day, we too would be willing to say No. We will risk the nuke. We are not submitting to this kind of a genocide. I I tend to think we would do that. I, I think it's, it's incredibly brave. And, you know, I have faith in my fellow Americans, but what's clear regardless is that Ukraine is going to fight, period. To the last Ukrainian, they are going to fight. And so we need to continue to operate within that reality and not try to impose concessions, impose a different interpretation of risk that the Ukrainians have no interest in. And I'd like to spend one more moment on the the concept of negotiations, because this is a sore point for me. And I'm sure you'll relate to this as well as it relates to, you know, previous eras of national security crises in the Middle East, where we often had the refrain that the United States needs to negotiate ceasefires or cessations of hostilities for humanitarian purposes, that the, the most morally right thing we can do is to end the shooting. And while I can understand that, and I too would love to see the violence stop, we have to understand the full definition of violence. It's not just happening on the front line. The Ukrainians that are living under Russian occupation are enduring horrific violence. The Russian occupation is brutal. And we would condemn that population to continuing to endure that if we try to force some kind of ceasefire line on the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are not going to do that. They're not going to abandon their people. and. It's just my perspective from the outside, but I think they're right not to abandon their people, because that population is suffering, oftentimes in too much silence. I mean, there's growing recognition of some of the Russian war crimes, and there's growing attention to trying to, you know, prosecute that and and build some evidence in in international courts. I think that's good, but I don't think that Western populations still have a full grasp on just the scale of the inhumanity that's going on behind these front lines.
0: And it's going to take years for proper investigations to. You know, I mean, remember when the UN stopped counting the dead in Syria, that itself was kind of a very evocative moment in the war where we just, there A, there are so many, and B, we have no forensic means of gathering the evidence to, to, to make this determination, right? Um, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, 2015. So, and we still had years to go with Assad's atrocities and, and so on and so forth. And yeah, I mean, you're right. And when Russia particularly has been party to these negotiated ceasefires, as you well know. I mean, can you name a single ceasefire in Syria that didn't result in, you know, the violent dismantling of the opposition, uh, and the perpetration of further atrocities and war crimes against territories that had been held by rebels. Um, it wasn't really a ceasefire. It was an opportunity for the other side, the, the more powerful side to catch its breath And to come up with a more creative strategy for winning a war. Right? So this is, there's no difference. Uh, Putin, as you mentioned, has the same objective that he's always had, which is a war of conquest. He wants Ukraine. He wants all of Ukraine. So if you give him the opportunity to regroup and to pause and to come up with new and inventive ways of trying to retake all of Ukraine, he's going to seize that opportunity, right? But I think there, you know, look, you know me for, what, 10 years, and you know how pessimistic and cynical I am, particularly about the American policymaking community, for good reasons, I would say. But one of the things that has been, and believe you me, I have my criticisms of the pacing and the sort of the, the rationalization for why today it's no, but tomorrow it's yes, and all this nonsense. But one of the things I have noticed is, you know, the, the, the dial has shifted in in the right direction right um i think there is more of a, a degree of self-confidence and more of a, a bullishness about what ukraine can achieve on the battlefield and even though you know we have to have our to be sure paragraphs about if this counter-offensive fizzles out or if it's only a modest success it's going to increase pressure for negotiations well okay great pressure for negotiations but with two combatants that do not want to negotiate with each other equals what you know, it's not like the United States can wave this magic wand and force two hostile parties into some kind of fetid arrangement that they don't want. I mean, if that were the case, peace in the Middle East would have broken out decades ago, right? Um, so I think you know we're still caught up in this sort of solipsistic way of viewing a, a faraway conflict. How does it affect us and our priorities and our timetables for? doing what we need to do. And let's talk one thing, just because I have you here, and I know that you study this intimately. This idea that what America is spending dollars and cents on Ukraine is A, exorbitant, B, unaccountable, C, you know, a complete and utter waste of money. Can you walk us through, because no doubt you're briefing people on the Hill about security assistance, where it's going, how it's being used effectively or not so effectively. Can you give my audience a sense of, you know, what are we spending in the billions, right? It's what 5% of our annual defense budget now, maybe a little more than that. Um, Value for dollar or no. The strategic defeat of the Russian army in a land war in Europe for 5% 5% of the annual US defense bu- budget sounds like a bargain to me but I don't know maybe maybe I'm not thinking enough like Marjorie Taylor Greene about these things what what is just sort of a, 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 a very inhumane cost benefit ratio
1: so i would agree with you and look i i'm going to take a couple steps back and frame this issue in part because that's usually what i do and can offer which is if we step back to understand US defense strategy and how the United States has been preparing for the potential that we will need to fight a war against a great power. There are a couple of interesting reflections. The first is we thought the Russians were our so-called pacing threat by which the Defense Department meant the threat, the state actor that has the potential to outpace us in military modernization. And present such a military threat that we might not win the next war. Okay. We thought the Russians were the pacing threat. Up until about, I think, 2016, 2017. And 5% of our defense budget is pretty roundly defeating that pacing threat. Not just a small percentage of our defense budget. But no American lives. So when we talk about cost as a nation, I think we need to continue to try. I know domestic politics is hard and I know that there are trade-offs and I, I get all of that, but we need to try to take the, the broad view because there are costs in terms of finances. There are costs in terms of risk, right? The cost of inaction in Ukraine means allowing the Russians to conquer Ukraine and then come for NATO because Putin is clear that that was his intent to come for NATO next. There is cost in lives. There is also cost in, I would argue, values in who we are as a nation. We are a country that stands up to oppression. Regardless of what you think about how well we have tended to do overseas or the mistakes that we have made as a great power, there's room for debating and analyzing all of that. And in fact, I personally think it's an aspect of American strength that we are so hard on ourselves. Our government is never good enough. Our national security is never good enough. Our country is never good enough. We are always trying to be better. I think some people take that in a pessimistic way to say that, oh, it's never good enough and therefore we should be sad about that. I tend to see it as a good thing. We're pretty unreasonable. (laughs) It's never good enough. We're always pushing for more.
0: Self-criticism bordering on self-loathing.
1: It goes a little far sometimes, I think, but I, I do think ultimately it's a strength. And I think you saw the kind of intrinsic American reaction to Ukraine at the start of this war that has since become a little clouded by politics, but I'll bring us back to what I thought was a very telling moment after the Russians invaded, which was, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, Americans on the whole were, you know, believed that the Russians were 10 feet tall. That includes policymakers, that includes the public, right? And yet the reaction to the Russians so brutally and overtly invading a country that posed no military threat to them, the reaction from the public in many places was to go dump out all of their Russian vodka. Because we understand what it means to stand up against tyranny. We understand what it means to fight for the right to exist, for the right to be independent. That's who the United States is. And I think it would be a very, very, very sad day if we were unwilling to spend 5% of our national defense to hold that line now,
0: with with rounding errors, Pentagon yeah. rounding errors in the billions, what, three billion dollars. Yeah, so I mean, we could even send three, an extra three billion, and not change the uh, the hatred and contempt for the uh, military-industrial complex that Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of her cohort have uh, for that and, and for this war. Um, anyway, Jenny, I, we started late because of my rounding error in terms of, uh, my scheduling, but, um, it was great to have you on as always our conversations I thoroughly enjoy. And now the public gets to enjoy them as well. Um, what can I, um, what can I promote here, uh, that you and your team have done? I know that you did a recent, uh, sort of assessment of the battle of Bakhmut, where you came out and said, the Ukrainians were right. The rest of us were wrong. This was worth defending just because of the casualties and and losses on the Russian side. We can read that at ISW's, uh, website, right? Institute for the study of war. Uh, and we can follow you on Twitter at.
1: Yeah. It's at the study of war. Um, I, my personal account is at Jenny Caffarella. Um, I, I would just say, yeah, simply please go read our work. Um, we have an incredible team that includes a lot of young analysts that are brilliant and have been working around the clock every day since this war began to produce mm-hmm. the maps that we produce and the analysis. Uh, we're not always right. Nobody's always right in intelligence. And whoever tells you that they are always right, you probably shouldn't trust. Uh, but our analysts are among the best out there. And we have been right quite a few times in this war, in part because we're studying it so closely. So,
0: And I, I- should say that among your analysts are Ukrainian analysts. Imagine that, Ukrainians writing about ukraine not 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 what, what the russians would call anglo-saxon western imperialist writing about but you have people from the country who speak the language who know the country the society the culture and who have a vested interest i should say in the outcome of this war who are part of the dc think tank community and this is not this is not heralded as, as much as it it ought to be i mean i've 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 realized uh, belatedly that you know Talking to people who come from a place, uh, you get a far better, more nuanced, and yes, impassioned, but for, for all that, more objectively correct understanding of that place than you do, you know, sitting in Washington or New York, watching cable news and and reading broadsheets. So, hats off to you for 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 hiring these guys.
1: Well, thank you. Hats off to them. It's truly a privilege.
0: Anyway, Jenny, uh, great to have you on and please come back. Uh, you've been listening to Foreign Office. My guest this week is Jenny Cafarella. She's the National Security Fellow at the Institute for the Study of War, which is doing hour by hour analysis of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So follow them and their work and we'll see you next week. Thanks very much.